0: We are repentant, we are grateful, we are redeemed, we are prayerful, we are First Baptist Church. tell you, if you're you're new with us today, this is a lot of fun. This is a lot of fun. Uh, My name is Danny Panter. I'm one of the associate pastors on staff here. had the privilege of preaching in this worship gathering. And what a joy it is to to listen to kids, to teach kids what it means to follow and trust Jesus. It's a privilege for me to do the same for you. But if you're you're new with us today, um, we're so thrilled to have you here. We're so thrilled to have you in Logos. Logos, that's a Greek word that means the Word. It refers to the Word, um, the title that uh, the Apostle John gave Jesus, given to him by the Holy Spirit. It also means the Word. We trust and believe in the Word, Jesus the Son, and we also have our confidence in the authority and credibility of the Word of God uh, written on these pages. And so that's why we call this Logos. It's part of our... Who we are our DNA, but if you're new with us, thank you so much for being here. We would love to have a, a record of your time with us. So right in front of you, hopefully you should see a card like this. It says connect here. If you would just honor us by filling that out, uh, and then at the close of our worship gathering, as you exit, if you could just put it on um, that, that bar to the right, that's called the Ask Me uh, booth, and you can just put that there. Um, we will follow up with you and and love to build uh, a friendship with you, which we value in this church family. Well, let's stand together. We're going to read verses 19 through 23 of Colossians chapter 1. 19 through 23. All right, here we go. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You may be seated. You may be seated. Father, Lord, we entrust this time to you. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, use this broken vessel um, to speak truth to these people that I love. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen. Um, So a very well-respected resident theologian and general all-around great guy, Art Williams, dear friend of mine, said this, summing up Paul's words in Colossians 1.15, um, the beginning verse that we went through last week. He said this, if you want to see God, look to Jesus. Isn't that a great summary of those verses that we looked at last week, that, that Paul was trying to communicate to us. And let me remind you that Paul's aim and heart for these people whom he's never met, he, he is being a pastor to them. He loves them. He loves them so much. but this is as a pastor, this is what Paul is trying to communicate to these people. He is saying to them, "Don't walk away from what you have heard." Don't move away from the things that you have heard about this Jesus, who I am a minister of throughout all creation, right? That's how he describes himself, and that's his aim, and Paul is beginning to build this case of why you should never walk away from what you know and what you have heard about Jesus, and that's what these verses are all about, and so... I backed, I backed us up to verse 19 instead, instead of beginning in verse 20. Verse 19 functions as a great summary statement for us as well. For the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, right? All of who God is, all of his nature, all of his essence, um, his power, his glory is in the person of Jesus, and that's a staggering truth. Think of that for a moment. I mean, we get kind of giddy and tripped out when we see a celebrity or a well-known person who's accomplished a lot, that they we find ourselves kind of near the same space. We're like, this. Did y'all see who that is? I mean, one of the Spurs players in an airport, we get a glimpse of them, we're like, wow. But can you imagine just for a moment? Jesus, very God of very God, in the flesh. Born as a little baby, grew into a man, all man. And he walked with people. People could touch him and hear him, and he is all God. Now the disciples began to understand this before Jesus even said it. Uh, They heard the words that Jesus spoke. Uh, They saw the people that he healed, village and town after town. They saw the miraculous signs of Jesus. When he spoke, he spoke with authority and ultimately they saw him rise from the grave. They began to clue in on this man is not just a man. Even remember what Peter said? Peter said, you are the son of God, the Christ. This is what the apostle John said about Jesus in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side. Who's at the father's side? Jesus the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is John saying, no one's ever seen God, but we saw God. We saw him, we had supper with him, we hung out with him, we heard him, he, he, he was around a campfire with us, we saw him heal people, and we saw him rise from the grave, we saw God. And that's, that's everything that Paul is saying about the person of Jesus in verses 15 through 19, and this summary statement in verse 19, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, but I want us to focus in on that word pleased. This is a reminder to us that this is not some grand experiment of God, this is not God saying, wow, I wonder what it's like to hang out with people on earth, I'll send my son. This is not a cosmic blunder of God. No, God sent the son, He sent him, he sent the word, and the word took on flesh. He was completely human and completely God. When we see that word pleased, it demonstrates us that it was God's pleasure that he sent the Son. In other words, God did it on purpose. He had a purpose behind sending the Son the way that He did, and so we read John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he sent the Son. He had a purpose, and so I'm gonna read that again. This time, I'm gonna invite you to help me out. So for God so loved the world, he was pleased to send the Son. Can you say that with me? For God so loved the world, he was pleased to send the Son. God sent the Son because he had a purpose in sending the Son, In your listening notes, you'll see that I have added a phrase and I'm gonna just sum up every point with this. So this is the summary right here. God was pleased because he had a purpose in sending the Son. Why? Why was, what was God so pleased about? What was he so pleased to do through the Son? Well, he tells us in verse 20. And through him... To reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. God's good pleasure through the Son was to make peace between himself. That's reconciliation. To bring two that were once apart back together, to make peace between himself and all of creation, namely, broken, sinful, fallen humanity. And Paul tells us the reason why. Why was it even necessary? Go to verse 21. He says this in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. For although they knew God, they did not honor his God or give thanks to him. We'll come back to that verse in a moment. But Paul says there are three reasons why there, were, there was this necessity of reconciliation, why peace needed to happen. And he says, first, Colossians and us, you were alienated from God. There was a deep, deep chasm between you and God. You were at odds with one another. You were disconnected. He even goes on. He says, not only were you alienated from one another, it wasn't that it just happened. It was because you were hostile in mind, which is what Romans one twenty-one tells us we did not honor him as God or give him thanks. So Paul is saying you were far apart from God. There was a deep chasm that you could not traverse. You couldn't overcome it. But not only that, you were hostile. You were an, an enemy to God. You rejected God. When you had an opportunity to say thanks to God, you didn't say thanks to God. When you had an opportunity to listen and to honor him, you chose to reject him. And he says, Colossians And First Baptist Church, you were hostile in mind. You were an enemy of God in every way. And not only that, not only was your mind hostile towards God, in other words, you rejected God right out, flat out. I don't have anything to do with you. I want to be my own God. That's what we say and what we have said. But not only that, it resulted in doing evil deeds. Rebellion began in the heart and mind, but it resulted in all kinds of evil. And all we have to do is look around us. In our broken, sinful world, those who've been hostile in mind, and we have done some treacherous things. There's no end. Even though all of us don't do all the kinds of evil out there, when we look in the world, there's no limit to the evil. That is done by those who are hostile in mind doing evil deeds. I know some marriages like this, not meant to be enemies, not designed to be enemies, but they are. They are hostile towards one another, alienated, distant. They hurt one another with word and deed. And the chasm is so deep that it seems impossible to overcome, to make things right again, or even for the first time. It's no wonder that God chooses marriage to be a picture of covenant love, that peace between a husband and life, joy and blessing between a husband and life. but when marriage goes all wrong it's also an incredible picture of the the deep chasm between humanity and god that seems hopeless and apart from god it is hopeless and in marriage when its both parties are at fault here it's all us I mean, we're that to the nth degree, a millionth times over. We have said no to God. We have thrown barbs at God. We have chosen to go our own way. And we have built this deep, deep, deep chasm. The Colossians were once like that. But Paul says it doesn't describe them. That doesn't describe them anymore. Paul says now you are reconciled. Everything has been made right. But how? Well, he tells us, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, as if you never sinned, and above reproach before him. Jesus, the son of God, Very God of very God, creator, sustainer, the image of the invisible God, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, the Son by his death, his body of flesh, by his death, by his blood reconciled us and made peace between us and God. That's how. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath. In other words, all of us stand guilty of treason, rebellion. All of us, like I've already said, are enemies of God. We are prisoners of war. We have committed war crimes against God and humanity. We are completely worthy of judgment, and not just a few of us, but all of us. The Bible describes all of us that way. If the hammer deserves to fall, it deserves to fall on us. We are by very nature children of wrath, but it doesn't stop there. Paul says in Ephesians, verses four through five, he says, but God being rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy, he sent the Son, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, creator, sustainer of the universe. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's how we're reconciled. Uh, Not by any work of our own. uh, Not by turning a corner and starting, starting to do better things or good things, but because of the Son of God. The one who is worthy and holy and true who shed his blood, his body, Jesus, the man, died for us. And this was the only way God could do it. Ephesians 2.6, let me just read this real quick. This is remarkable, listen to this. This is the result of God's mercy through the sending of the Son and Jesus reconciling us back to God. Ephesians 2.6, and raised us up with him And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When we talk about reconciliation, we're not talking about halfway. Isn't that good news? That when we are reconciled, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Doing a work we never could have done on our own or even have thought of doing. Because we are hostile in mind, but Jesus did on our behalf. When we deserved to be eternally condemned for our rebellion and hostility towards God, Christ died for us. The man, Jesus, God, Jesus. He took our place, taking on all of God's wrath as children of wrath, so that we would be forgiven and maybe made holy and be reconciled. So, the Colossians had heard this before, so have we we know this. Most of you have heard. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Right? But here's the point of Paul. Coming out of verses 15 through 19, that exalted Jesus, as rightly Paul should, that there's no one like him, that he is he is the creator, sustainer. He holds all things together. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in this is This is the whole point that he wants to remind the Colossians of and us is that there is no other person or no other thing that can do what Jesus has done for you and continues to do. There's no other thing, no other work, no other activity, no other sacrament, no other ritual that can do what Jesus has already done for you on the cross and the resurrection when you put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. No person, no thing can replace or empower what Jesus has done or add to what Jesus has done. That's the whole point. That's his case. It's not at if Jesus says, all right, I died for you and rose from the grave. I got things started from you. Now, if you could just finish that work. I've just got your righteousness to a certain point. Now, you've just got to add your own righteousness to keep it going, to finish what I started. Listen, we can't do that. We can't live this life of faith that way. That's the whole point of Paul, that only Jesus is able not only to redeem you from your wickedness and hostility of mind, but also sustain you to the finish line. To make you more righteous day by day. To conform you to the image of his son Jesus day by day. You don't do that. Paul's saying you can't do that. You can't add to that. So don't. Don't do it. Jesus died once for all time. What he accomplished on the cross he did for all time. You can't add to it or take away from it. God was pleased to reconcile enemies to himself and only Jesus could do it. But then we get to verse 23. Oh, man. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting, from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If. No one likes that word if. We get to that word if and we're like, oh my goodness. Do I need to be looking over my shoulder and wondering if if I was saved yesterday and not saved today because of something I did this morning? Can I just, put you at ease, that's not what Paul's after here. Uh, Paul's not trying to paint this picture of us once saved, not saved, because of something you did between point A and point B, because you, you, you yelled at your daughter uh, in the morning because of something. and uh, That's not what Paul's after. But it is a very important if for us. There's clearly a lot at stake here. And this is really the turning point or the crux of Paul's case for Jesus, if, if. And so full of grace and boldness, as a pastor, he writes to the Colossians, and now we receive today, he says, if there's a change in the object of your faith, if you look look somewhere else for hope to overcome your sin and alienation from God, let me tell you, you remain in sin. Your, Your faith is not saving faith. If your faith is misplaced and not in the Jesus of verses 15 through 19, you don't have saving faith. That's what the if means. If your faith Is not lasered in on the person of Jesus, the historical Jesus, the Son of God who was fully man and fully God, and the work of Jesus who died, gave up his body and blood on your behalf so that you can be. Reconciled and have peace with God, if, you're, if your faith is misplaced on thinking that somehow you can do a new work to add to the righteousness of Jesus, or if you can perform some sacrament, or if you can go to enough worship gatherings, or enough Bible studies, or be kind enough, if you think somehow that makes you right with God, Paul says you don't have saving faith. because it's deviated from the person who who alone can do the kind of work that you need. And he's pleading with them. Remember the Jesus you have heard. Cling to the person and work of Jesus. You can't add to it, and don't believe anyone who says that you can This isn't new, Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew 10, 22. listen to this, he says, the one who endures until the end, you will be saved. The one who holds on to me. For Paul and us, a faith that moves on to something else or someone else, rather, in trust, rather than trusting in Jesus, the person isn't saving faith at all. Listen, the work of faith, the the work of faith is not you working at all. The work of faith is trusting in a person, Jesus, who has done the work for you. Always, now and forever. Paul says, Colossians, be immovable regardless of what people say say to you and the culture demands, be steadfast, stay the course. Goodness gracious, we face the same kind of things today even more so at a faster rate than perhaps the Colossians did. This is why Paul had to write the letter because people are beginning to peck at them and tell them things that were false and untrue and we'll get to those next week or the weeks to come but it's no different today. Maybe they're worse. New trends and fads, old ideas dressed up as new ideas come along in a growing culture that really is reluctant to commit to anything, right? We'll sign up for one app or one thing one day and forget it about it the next and grab hold of the new app. We got a financial app, we got a this app, photo filter app. We got every kind of app that we need. We just grab onto stuff and then we just pass on. Once that's outdated, we move on to something else. And that's true for ideas and beliefs too. My goodness, our world comes up with brain... Well, they're not new, by the way. They're just dressed up in a new way. But there's this trend and fads and new ideas. I don't care what it is. It's out there. I mean, our world has these buzzwords of ideas that if we don't grab hold of these and, and believe them, then somehow we're not in the in crowd or lesser than and outdated and we, under the pressure of culture, it demands us that we've got to latch on to every trendy idea that comes our way. And we just kind of, sometimes for us Christians, we just kind of add them along with Jesus. Add them along with Jesus and pretty soon Jesus becomes kind of like this, he becomes the add-on, just something at the bottom somewhere. Amongst all of our ideas and beliefs that we've just kind of Latched onto. Goodness, we subscribe to things. You ever, you subscribe to stuff, and then like months later, you get an email from that subscription that you subscribe, and you're like, what did I, I forgot I even subscribed for that. Paul says, don't, that's, don't treat Jesus that way. That can't be Jesus in your life. If, If you're not steadfast, if your faith is movable and Jesus gets shuffled down among all the other beliefs and you start putting your faith and beliefs and all these other things that the world says is really cool and in, Paul says "That's, that's not saving faith at all. You've lost sight of the person. You've lost sight of the work and only he can do what you really need. He's the universal app that does it all Y'all, are y'all familiar with the universal theory for everything? Scientists and physicists believe that they can, they can boil the universe down to one complex theory, formula. That's Jesus. We don't need to add to him, take away from him. He's all we need. For our past sin, present sin, future sin, for our future righteousness, he is all we need. And that's what Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians over and over again, don't move away from him, don't add to him, but be steadfast in faith. And so if we just summarize this, we are reconciled back to God if we rest in who Jesus is and what he has done, just like There ain't nothing you can do to keep an airplane in the air but just sit in your seat. What do I do with this? I mean, personally, what do do I do as Danny Panter, one of the pastors of this church, what do I do with this truth, this reminder? I just wanna share with you two ways, and there are a lot of ways that you can apply this to your life, but let me just share with you just quickly two ways that I do it and and hopefully you can resonate with this, rejoice with this, or be challenged to do it on your own. When I sin, and by the way, I do sin. Some of you know that personally. Um, I do sin. I'm a sinful man saved by grace and by the grace of God, hopefully I sin less and less as I walk with Jesus, but I'm a sinful person. But what do I do That moment that I'm convicted of the sin that I just committed, whether it's against my kids or my wife or a friend, what do I do? I have options. I can say, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did this. I've got to figure out a series of tasks, things that I need to do that I know Jesus wants me to do to make it up to him. Okay, um, I know I didn't go to worship service the past two weeks, so I'm gonna do four in a row. I'm gonna go to four worship gatherings in a row. Maybe that, oh, maybe five or maybe a thousand Hail Marys. I'll go a thousand Hail Marys. And we start thinking uh, that's the option. I can start trying to work in order to appeal to God and say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. Is this enough? I'm going to that Revelation Bible study, Father. Is that enough? That's option one. Option two. I can boldly approach the throne of grace because I know that I'm a son of God who has already been forgiven of the sin that I've just committed. And I can go to the person of Jesus and I can say, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me of this sin. I confess it to you. I confess it to you. That I just said that to my wife. And I can do it boldly because God's already done the work through Jesus. Romans chapter 8 says you don't have to live in fear anymore. You can come to the Lord and say, What? Father. That's because of Jesus, the person, the work. I don't come to the Father and say, All right, look what I've done. Is that enough? No, I say, Thank you because your son was enough. And then I go to my wife and I say, I know what I've done, I know what I've said, I should never have said it, will you forgive me? Christ has forgiven me, but now you forgive me? That's, That's one way that I apply this to my life. I remind myself, it's the person, I go to the person rather than trying to make it right on my own. Secondly, what do I do when someone sinned against me? What if you do when someone has sinned against you? You have some options. You can either hold a grudge, you can take vengeance, take matters into your own hands, right? Or, you can forgive them. By the way, forgiving someone of a sin against you is not sweeping things underneath the rug, I'll tell you how. So I, I had the choice. Take vengeance, hold a grudge, be passive, be silent, do nothing but just burn inside, or I can forgive them. Now, on what basis do I forgive them? The person of Jesus. If they're a brother and sister in Christ, I can with confidence forgive them because Jesus has already dealt with their sin on the cross. He took care of it already. So what privilege do I have to hold on to it? And so rather than hold a grudge or take vengeance, God has already taken vengeance. Jesus has died for their sin. And I don't have to hold on to it anymore. You know what kind of freedom there is in that? It's a game changer. When you can go to the person of Jesus, rather than doing stuff on your own or holding on to stuff, It gives you the freedom to extend grace to people in the same way that God has extended grace to you because Jesus has already taken care of it. And so, when I go to that person, I don't come to them and say, look what you have done to me. How dare what you've done to me. You're gonna pay. I don't say that, either out loud or quietly. I can go to them and say, you know what, I just need to let you know, I love you, but the things that you said to me did hurt me. You can say things with grace. It doesn't mean you sweep it underneath the rug. You do talk about it, you address it. But you've already trusted in the forgiveness of Jesus on behalf of that person, which liberates you to then turn to that person and say, what you said or did hurt me, and I want to make have reconciliation with you. Now, you're not responsible for what they say and do, but it does liberate you. What do you do with this? What do you do with this truth that Jesus alone, the person, the son of God, died on the cross and rose from the grave and has reconciled you back to God? What do you do with that every single day? My heart and prayer for you is that you do apply that, that you run to Jesus every single day, regardless of the circumstances, that he is your universal theory for everything. Everything. Let's pray. Father, God of grace and glory, we're so thankful for your son, Jesus. Help us never to make him small or... uh, or add anything to him, but help us to trust and come to Jesus alone in all of life. In all of life. Lord, may we respond with faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said amen. Stand with me, we're gonna sing, we're gonna respond together. Listen, uh, these altars are open, Um, come pray. Say, Lord, forgive me. I've made you small in my life. Help me to come back to you. Help me not to add to you. But let's worship. Let's respond in how the Lord wants us to respond. Let's sing and you come.